Hello and welcome to The Things That Make Us, a podcast about people and the objects that have shaped them. My name is Zoe Laughlin and each week I invite a guest to pick five things that have inspired, delighted, provoked or influenced them. We then talk about these things on tape at a time and place of their choosing with as many of the items present as possible. In this episode, I met artist Cornelia Parker, someone whose work often involves finding things, grinding things, squashing things and blowing things up. I visited Cornelia at home to discover what five things she feels have made her. experience of kind of picking your five things? It's very hard because I, I realised I've got a very curious relationship to objects <laughs> and for many years I've been making a series of work called Avoided Objects which um, are small works of art that I that I sort of get attracted to things that aren't really objects like something in the earliest stage of production like embryo firearms you know which are Colt 45 guns early stage production or which is like a preempted object or something that's been um, like charcoal a church struck by lightning which is no longer <laughs> a building um, or things like stains and shadows and tarnish that accrues on objects so when I tried to start thinking about which objects I should choose it became quite you know complicated and there's also a really interesting relationship in your work between the material and the object. Yeah. And that continuum that somehow they're in constant conversation with each other. Yeah, more recently, for example, I've been working with Graphene, working, collaborating with Kostya Novoselov, who's one of the in, you know, inventors or discoverers of Graphene up in Manchester University because I did a show last year at the Whitworth. And I met Kostya because I was, I mean, a very keen materials person and I've been following its progress. And um, graphene is a one atom thick layer of graphite. And so when I met Kostya, um, he and Andrew Geen discovered it. I said, Kostya, can you make graphene out of old master drawings? And Gostia, you know, who loves art, sort of face lit up and said, yes, I think so. And so, so he and I went to the Whitworth in Manchester, which had a lot of old master drawings, Constable Turner, Picasso, everybody. And so we looked through microscopes at the drawings. And very often there's usually a tiny bit of um, graphite that's come loose. And conservators, paper conservators usually take that little tiny piece of graphite away because it will smudge the rest of the drawing. And so the conservator allowed cost you to remove these little specks from Constable Turner, Blake, Picasso. And then he went back to his lab and he made graphene out of it, which is, you know, means peeling away the layers until you get this one little, you know, sort of uh, 2D material. And then I said to Costia, what can we do with it? You know, can you, is it, a, can it be a catalyst? You know, can it be a transistor? Can it be, you know, we discussed what it could be. And then I said, if you could, could it be a switch? Could it, activate you know can it make an electrical pulse and he said yes I said well, what would activate it and he said well a breath would do so <laughs> so we took a little tiny speck of Blake the graphene and on the night of my opening at the, the, the Whitworth uh, Costia he breathed on this piece of <laughs> this little transistor he'd made and it 
cause electrical charge, the moisture in his breath, to set off a fire display which contained a meteorite. So, so this physicist, it's called Breath of a Physicist, that part of it, and, uh, and it triggered off Blake in Abstract, which is a fire display I just designed around Blake, who is full of meteors and tempests, all his poetry. So, so this uh, Blakean abstract fire display was created and triggered by Costia. <laughs> so was the meteorite ground up? Yes, it was. It, I've so used what colours did it produce? Well, the meteorite used was from Arizona, from the big meteor crater there. Um, so it was iron and it would be expressed as yellow light. Mm amongst all the other colours, so, so the, the meteorite element in the fire display is, is iron. It was the yellow bit? Yes, the yellow. I like the idea of an orchestrated meteorite landing, so scientists, you know... <laughs> or a re-landing. Re-landing. Yeah. It was a re-enactment, really, of its initial landing. So what's the first thing you have picked to talk about today? Um, well, cracks. <laughs> There's a lot of cracks in the world, I know, um, but it's a big subject. But I have made cracks into sculptures, p predominantly in Jerusalem. I made a, a cast of a cracked pavement, which means I took some um, sort of cold cure rubber, two-part catalyst and you know a, a liquid that when they're put together they, they go they harden over a short period of time and I took them in my suitcases extra luggage uh, through Tel Aviv airport which was very scary to Jerusalem and where I was doing an exhibition and I over the hours of darkness because I was a bit worried about you know <laughs> patrolling guys with you know with <laughs> army guys with uh, machine guns um, so I, there's this lovely cracked pavement in East Jerusalem, which I squirted this liquid into the cracks, and once it was dry, uh, with the help of others, I rolled it up, and I put it in my suitcase and brought it back. <laughs> and then those cracks were made into a bronze, which was about four and a half metres long, so it was kind of quite a long piece of pavement. And the piece was called Jerusalem, and it was the idea of me occupying a territory and bringing the territory back. So do you... Just not, you know, notice the cracks around it. On the way to you this morning, I realised that at the end of your road, there's a really interesting crack where someone's wedged a piece of wood in the road surface. Have you spotted that? No, no. I mean, what I love about cracks is when it rains, they fill up, you know, they become puddles, and then they evaporate again. And I suppose, you know, my fixation with cracks has gone back to childhood. I mean, we had a very old house, and the walls in my bedroom were very cracked, the surface, um, it's a 400 year old house. And so I'd have to count the, the faces and the, and the cracks before I went to sleep. So, so yeah, cracks are the, one of these non-objects. You know, they're a space between one thing or another. So I like that. Where did you grow up? In Cheshire, in, on a small holding, on a small, you know. So a rural farm? Rural, rural, yeah. And I had a lot of physical contact with growing things, milking cows by hand. You know, it was a very tactile childhood, you know, mm. constantly dirty. <laughs> um, climbing trees, building stuff. So, yeah, so the physicality of, you know, I think my first sculptures were mud pies, as always. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so, object number two. Object number two, now. Well, um, backs. They're not really objects either. The backs of things. I like things that are unfinished. So, I remember when I did a Rome scholarship in 1989, I went to Rome and I went to the top of the uh, St. Paul, uh, St. Peter's in Rome, the big you know, cathedral, and all the Benini sculptures were all propped up at the back. They're very ornate at the front, but the backs were very you know, plain and minimal, and they had lots of props, rusting iron props. I'd been up there a couple of years ago thinking I'd 
love to photograph all that stuff because I never did earlier on. And they'd all been repaired and cleaned. And still, still pretty interesting though. But, but because this thing about the back, it's almost like the subconscious. It's almost like people don't expect it to be seen, so therefore they don't pay attention to it. So I, I like that. Um, and I've been photographing backs for a long, long time, really. And also um, in 1998, I did a piece which was featuring the back of Turner paintings. So. Um, the canvas liners of T Turner's paintings um, had been um, kept by the Tate. You know, they'd been, um, they, they, you know, they'd re-stretched them. So they had all these stains on them from when there was a flood in 1927 or whatever at the Tate, and and um, and, I, and and stretcher bars. So they look like Rothko paintings because all the patina that accrued on the backs. So I exhibited a set of these uh, as, as works with the title of the painting they were the back of, so Venice at Sunset or Rothsey with Wreckage. And this idea that you're just you know, looking at the backs of things, it's called Room for Margins. So it's all about the marginalia or the, or the stuff that, at the edges of the backs of things. It's interesting because some pictures have fronts and backs. But sculptures could also have tops and bottoms as well. I'm thinking yeah. of like pots in the craft tradition. A serious potter might turn over the vase straight yeah. away and have a look at it yeah. underneath to get a sense of who made it first. And it's that instinct of the artist to look behind. I think so. I think it's, you know, it, it, the object in the round. And, um, you know, objects don't often, um, like for example, the budget bag, you know, the old scruffy bag that the Chancellor would hold. And the reason he held, holds it up almost a bit like a, an armour is because the original budget uh, bag had had a, a black baize back because Gladstone had had it as a, 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 a sitting on his desk it was meant to sit flat and it had a handle on in the middle of the, the, the top surface and then he adapted it to make a briefcase and, and put the handle on the side and from then on the Chancellor would always have to <laughs> hold it up so people wouldn't see the, the scuffy underside. I did a photograph at the back and the front of the budget box as an artwork. Um, um, so it's black and red. I love this thing about being in the, the economy in the being in the red or in the black. <laughs> and now um, George Osborne has had a new one made and uh, the new budget box, and he, he he's still you know got a black back on it. Really, so he hasn't yeah. put red on both sides. No, oh. so it's quite interesting. So yeah. he still does this thing. So this gesture is coming out of the, them trying to hide the back of something, which I really like. But is it important that the back? is about that natural occurrence of making a front. Yeah, I think somehow it's an unconscious. Mm. You know, I mean, you're thinking a lot about the front, but the back, it becomes a, a sort of a different thing just because you're not thinking about it as much. And sometimes it's much rougher in the front. <laughs> and I think that's obviously something like a chair, you, you care about every bit of it. But I think if something sits on a surface or leans against a wall or, you know, um, I think all those things are very interesting. Um, I particularly like the backs of paintings. I mean, I've just been in the Metropolitan Museum in New York and I went to the Conservation Department and they showed me an x-ray of the back of a, uh, a Picasso. You know, it was a stretch of bars and everything. But you could see on the underside all the different decision-making he'd made. Um, so, was, so they loved the backs of things, conservatives. But yeah, backs, backs are uh, uh, just as important as cracks to me. Packs and cracks. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Don't really know what we're thinking, but yeah. So, number three, object number three, or thing uh, number three. Well, 
uh, I'm going to choose this because I've just been working with it for the last year, The Psycho House from Hitchcock's yeah. film Psycho, which sits on top of a hill. And I've just done a project in New York on the top of the Met Museum where I've made a facsimile of it, of the set. The set is only two, you know, two of the walls. And the reason you see it from that angle in the film, it's, and only that angle, is if they move the camera to left to right, you see it was just all propped up from behind and all scaffolding. And so I really love that artifice, you know, that it inspires such fear and contains such psychological reservoir. And yet it's just these two facades. And then you usually get Hitchcock standing at the bottom of the hill pointing up. Um, and for my piece, I, what I did was um, recreated the original set. Um, so it's just these two walls uh, propped up from behind. And the, the walls, you know, the whole thing has been made out of a, a red barn from upstate New York. And the reason I did that is because I was looking at Edward Hopper. And Edward Hopper painted lots of red barns, but he also painted this painting called House by the Railroad, which is a very famous painting. And Hitchcock used that painting to base his psycho house on. And so somehow I really like this, this idea that um, Hitchcock, this Brit from Leytonstone, London, <laughs> goes over to Hollywood, you know, and sort of, uh, you know, appropriates Hopper, who is quintessentially American. Mm -hmm. um, but the house itself has got, you know, these mansard roofs, which is quite, you know, Parisian. It's quite that, that style of the Second Empire style, they called it, when it went over to America. It was European, really, and, and French. And then um, Hopper loved that. He spent time in Paris. He was painting that kind of architecture, and he wrote about it, that he loved the Wolf Mansard route. But somehow it's now become um, Californian gingerbread. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's mutated, yeah, yeah. you know, by crossing America from Europe. And then Hitchcock's picked it up and, and, and made it into something so iconic it's used in other films like, you know, it's been in many other films, the actual house has, but, you know, just adapted and modified. And then, it, you know, you, you get things like the Adams Family House, you get Days of Heaven, you know, Terence Malick, you know, this, there's, there's lots of references to the Psycho House. Which... But I guess also in this notion of that set and the film, again, that's something with a very explicit notion of the back, if you ever see it, then it, the yeah, contrast yeah. again is really... Start. And so in my piece on the Met Roof, you, you, you get the facade and it works from um, a particular view and then you get the house set against the skyline of New York um, and it's, you know, red rather than black and white because the film is, is black and white. What I like about the Psycho House is everybody recognises what it is. So what sort of tools do you see as part of your equipment as being an artist? Obviously photography is really important. Yeah, now I mean I love the, the fact we've got now got the iPhone and I use it as a you know a, a constant you know sketchbook you know that I now sort of you know photographing about 50 images a day if, if not more and, and so and it's it's fantastic in a way because it always acts as your memory. Mm. Um, my memory's fading <laughs> as I'm getting older, and and yet the tools that we have to capture things are becoming more sophisticated. Yeah, so very often the images I take become the kind of logbook for making the next piece of work. So are you quite diligent about archiving them? And there's a sort of, you know, lots of people have on their iPhone thousands of pictures, but they never actually take them off their phone. Well, I, I, I do download them all the time and I put them into my, you know, uh, new ideas file or my whatever cracks file or... Um, in fact, one of my pieces was photographing the cracks in a prison wall 
on my iPhone, which became a piece of work. Um, it's just that every day I'd pass Pentonville Prison on the way to the studio and, you know, workmen were working on the surface of the wall and filling all the cracks and they were really beautiful. Uh, and then <laughs> and then one day I'd pass by and they were, oh, that's a post coming through the door, <laughs> another object for me to discover later. Anyway, and then they, would, they were just about to paint it all out. They were painting with magnolia paint, so I just jumped, you know, and got my iPhone and I just clicked away and then that, those those suite of photographs became a piece of work. Um, so they were good enough to print, you know, it was great. And that just recorded that moment mm. just before the, the wall got repaired and finished. And, and then that, later that day, a prisoner escaped over the wall. <laughs> you couldn't make it up, could you? <laughs> and, you know, it doesn't happen very often. But if I'd been there a couple of hours later, I might have witnessed him. Are you one for routine? Will you be, okay, I'd like to do a nine to five in the studio? No, I'm the opposite. The whole point of being an artist, as far as I'm concerned, was to not have a routine. <laughs> and I'm very tangential and sort of disorganised person. And, you know, when I have an exhibition, it's, it forces me to, to, to sort of find order in all the, the morass of stuff um, and focus. And so my focus only was a gun to my head, <laughs> metaphorically speaking. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm my husband um, is a painter and he's, he's off at the studio now. He's, he's more of a you know, nine to six kind of person. I'm, I'd have to pretend I'm not working. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'll avoid any kind of work, but of course I work very but hard. But it's ticking over all the time. Yeah, yeah, but I'm working all the time, I suppose. Mm. And, um, and things, things evolve and... and I mean, I've made that large piece in New York really from, from my kitchen table, you know, using set builders in New York. And, uh, I mean, so, so for me, the studio is not the place. It's in my head, it's in my phone, it's in conversation, and it gets made for the space. Mm. You know, of course, I use the studio sometimes if I have to do something messy or you know, just try something out. But I, I quite like making things in response to a space. And, and with a deadline, and therefore it gets made, and you, you have to strip away all those paravocations you'd have in the studio. I'm too, too much of a paravocator to be a studio artist. Next object. Right, next object. Uh, Niagara Falls. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> I know it's not really an object, but <laughs> I, I've never been to Niagara Falls, and I really want to go. My parents went there for their honeymoon, so the first photographs I saw of Niagara Falls were from their honeymoon and I thought, wow, you know, that's amazing. And then I have made, a, you know, of course, <laughs> you know, I suppose I'm drawn to iconic things like the Psycho House and the Niagara Falls because they, they become part of our l landscape, um, e even if you're not visited. And I made a piece many years ago called Measuring Niagara as a Teaspoon. So I took a silver teaspoon and made it into, it into the, the height of Niagara Falls according to an encyclopedia but if you look up online you know the height changes all the time because obviously the, the Niagara Falls is being eroded and so it's a shapeshifter really and this whole idea of people going over the Niagara Falls in a barrel <laughs> and it being this unstoppable natural force that we try and measure it so the idea of measuring with a teaspoon which makes you think you might just be there with your teaspoon you know trying to catch a bit of water in it and then um, you know, the, 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 this length of wire, which is the, the teaspoon and the height of Niagara Falls is one thing. You've made it into this one object and then it's trapped between two sheets of glass as a drawing, as a wire drawing, because that's the process mm. of, of, of making wire, it's, it's called drawing. So the drawing out of the wire 
Did you have to calculate how thick the wire would be with the amount of material you had in the yes. spoon to get the length you needed? Yes, and the silversmith worked all that out. So it's, it's an ounce of silver, for example, which I think the spoon's about an ounce of silver. They could tell you what gauge that would be, what length you'd get. So, but it was all drawn out by hand on a, a ratchet. So it was really quite a you know, Sisyphean task for the poor silversmith. And is it literally a, something that looks like a spoon at one end? No. And it's, a, what, there must be a midpoint. No, because what they do is they melt the spoon down to a little ingot. Oh, okay. And then they pull that ingot through a round hole of a certain thickness, you know, just about the same size as the ingot, and then it makes it rounder and rounder. And you keep pulling it for increasingly smaller holes until it gets to the required gauge size hole, so a tiny hole, and they have a kind of pair of pincers and a kind of a ratcheting machine that pulls it through. So they keep on drawing the material. And I've had all kinds of objects made to wire over the years, like wedding rings into the circumference of a living room, or um, a dollar into the Heart of Statue of Liberty. Um, do you think you'll ever go to Niagara Falls? I'd like to. I, I, I think I will. I'm sure do you think I'm you'd have to go with a piece in mind, like I, I, in I preparation kind of, for something? Or I, could I, you just go on a family holiday? Well, I don't know. I think I'd like to make a piece with it, I must admit. You know, it's become such a thing now that I really do think it's, there's a piece of work there that I'd like to make, even if it's very small. <laughs> you know, obviously something's got to go over the falls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. They've gone over the falls many times in my mind, so it's, it's, I've got a terrible fear of heights as well, so I mean, I think in a way it's, it's about fear. I mean, there's, you know, another Hitchcock film about Niagara Falls, Niagara, with Marilyn Monroe. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, romantic attachment and drama attached to that. Um, and the Maid of the Mist, and I mean, it's, it's a, you know, I think it's all these famous spots in the world that, you know, it could have been um, Grand Canyon or, um, you know, the Nile. I mean, there's all these places that you want to visit because they're the Grand Tetons, you know, big, big, big forces of nature. So you're always on in that respect of thinking, gathering, yet it's not the routine of the studio. Do you do anything that you totally regard as not work? Like, are you a secret golf player? And <laughs> and that's. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I mean, I'm a secret shopper. I mean, I just managed to incorporate shopping in my work a lot. <laughs> when I was doing my silver squashing, it means I had to go to an awful lot of street markets and antique markets. And so, is it the hunting, the hunting for the thing that may be just the right thing that you don't know you want until you see it? Yeah, I think it's looking. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's an excuse to look. And I suppose that's, you know, whether you're buying clothes or you're buying objects for your work or, you know, trying to find a red barn. <laughs> you know, you're looking. And, you know, I think we've all got a bit of a secret shopper in us, haven't we? I mean, I'd rather be shopping than being in the studio. <laughs> but then I feel guilty and then I have to incorporate it into my work. Next thing. Oh, dear. Well... The nightgown that Mia Farrow wore in Rosemary's Baby, she wears this pale blue nightgown on, on all the posters of the film, and she, it's when she discovers her child's the devil, she's given birth to the devil. Um, when I was pregnant, which was, you know, 2000, 2001, I was, you know, feeling very emotionally, you know, I was 45, <laughs> just about to give birth, I was very emotionally challenged. And then I noticed that this nightgown was for sale on Sotheby's. Um, Mia Farrow had put it in a UNICEF auction um, in New York, an online auction, 
and I bought it because <laughs> I thought I might wear it to give birth in. <laughs> I didn't. You didn't. I was going to say, well, well, she's tiny for a start, and I'm, you know, I'm five foot ten, so it wasn't possible. But I did put the when I got the the nightgown, which was very exciting. It was very, uh, it'd been used a lot. Let's put it that way. But I think she'd let her seventeen children play with it, and it'd been in the in the, the kids' play box for a long time. So it was, you know, it was a bit dishevelled and stained, and although I still thought it was great, so I decided to show it behind a sheet of frosted glass hanging like an apparition with light behind it and it was called Blue Shift. Another reason I bought it, that's a cat eating in the background, crunch, 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 um, is I was, you know, doing a show in Turin at the time and the Turin Shroud was one of my favourite, another of my favourite objects. So for me, this is a diptych to the Turin Shroud. The Turin Shroud is all about the death of Christ, or supposed death of Christ. Might be fictional, might be real, we don't know. The nightgown is, you know, about the birth of the devil. <laughs> and Roman Polanski made the film. His wife, Sharon Tate, was in the film and she died of, you know, she was murdered by Charles Manson a few months later when she was nine months pregnant. So there was a horrible parallel to reality with that piece, you know, that there was this horrible sort of, um, um, it, the film was filmed in the Dakota building, you know, where Don Lennon lived. It had this sort of tragic air to it. Um, Did you bid for it in an auction? Yes. That was an exciting shopping experience. It was, it was two o'clock in the morning. Uh, you on the phone? Uh, it, it was an online auction and I kept getting outbid, but I just kept on bidding and then I got way past my estimate and then I thought, oh, it told me I was outbid again. So I went to bed, I thought, I'm not going to afford this. And the next morning I got this email saying, you won the, the auction. And I thought, I was a bit, I was a little bit um, sceptical. I thought, oh dear, I think there might have been, you know, the, who was I bidding against? Anyway, um, I was very happy to get it, whatever the price was. But uh, there had been some news later about some of his fiddling things. <laughs> but anyway, so I... So it wasn't an eBay thing? This was, no, this it was, was a sub-auction. Sub yeah, sub yeah. yeah. And this piece now lives in New York in a, a private collection. But it's, I think they've built it into the whole room. Because <laughs> we were trying to borrow it recently to put in my Metropolitan um, Museum show. And um, they couldn't extricate it because it's <laughs> they'd uh, you know, made it an architectural feature in the house. So what's, what's next? I'm working on a show called Found at the Foundling Museum. Um, I'm the Hogarth Fellow. In Hogarth's day was this place where women who couldn't look after their children would bring their babies there and, and they would be adopted by the hospital. And Hogarth was a big patron of it and he encouraged a lot of the, the contemporary artists of the day to show there. So some of the biggest exhibitions contemporary art happened at the Foundling Hospital and it brought in a lot of the, the great and good and then attracted philanthropy to the, to the hospital. And um, those group of artists he showed became the colonel of the Royal Academy. So that's the beginnings of the Royal Academy happened there. And I've invited about 25 Royal Academicians and lots of other artists to show, uh, uh, to do with the, the found, found object, rather than to do with foundling children. It's more to do with the found in, in sculpture or painting, uh, or to, to just put an object in. So I think it's going to be quite a nice group of things. Are you ambitious? Ooh. Um, I suppose I must be, else I wouldn't be where I am. <laughs> um, but I think I'm just, I'm not ambitious in the fact that, I remember giving a, a lecture recently to 
patrons of the Royal Academy and they were saying, oh, you know, you seem to jump around a lot in your work, you know, and were worried about my signature style, you know, and I said, well, I'm not too worried about it, no. I mean, I can make a film about Noam Chomsky one week and, <laughs> you know, take some photographs the next. It doesn't have to be consistent because that's me. I'm just trying to let the me be me and um, uh, and I'm just experimenting really you know I mean I do feel like affinity with something like Costia Novoselov you know in terms of our experimentation you know that we're just testing things out mm. um, yeah, there are signature themes to my work but I don't worry I always presume my unconscious knows a lot more than my conscious so um, I mean I'm sh sure I could have been much more Financially successful by now, if I'd you know made more signature work that just you know is a much more refined furrow, but um, I'm, my scattergun approach is it makes me feel happier. Cornelia Parker, thank you so much for sharing the things that I've made you with us. Really fascinating. Thank you very much. listening to the things that make us to see pictures of the things selected by the guest in this and all episodes please visit the things that make us.com you can get in touch with the show via twitter at things make us and if you like what you hear please subscribe so not to miss the next installment